0: With guest host, Marissa Lennox.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Marissa Lennox, filling in for Libby's Nimer this week. It's good to have you along. They call it the Dog Days of Summer for a reason, and yet today our agenda is surprisingly packed with some big news. The Pope has traveled to Canada specifically to deal with the issue of reconciliation and the issues arising from the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. Will this be enough? Will it make a difference? And when there isn't agreement on what is needed to achieve reconciliation, then how is it possible? But first, it is Monday, so the Zoomer squad is here and we'll be talking about the fact that we are in a heat wave. And yet 90 Ontario long-term care facilities still do not have air conditioning, despite promises and commitments made by various elected officials, including our own premier. Also on the agenda a headline over the weekend read, Toronto Western Hospital narrowly avoids ER shutdown amid staffing shortages. The thing that always strikes me when talking about Canada's healthcare system is it's the best system in the world until you actually have to use it. So we'll talk about that with the panel. And as always, we want to hear from you on all of these issues. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 Let's bring in the panel Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy Officer of CARP and Chief Operating Officer of CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Good to have you both here. Hello,
2: Marissa. Hi, Marissa.
1: Hi, Bill. And now I know this is a subject you and I have discussed extensively, Bill, and it's an issue CARP has been on for years. But here we are. Another summer goes by where our most vulnerable residents in long-term care are expected to survive 90 degree heat with no air conditioning in their homes. And I hate to beat a dead horse here, but if these were children, our politicians would move mountains to fix it because the voting public would make sure of it
2: yep you're absolutely right and uh it's a it's a continuing uh concern uh this year, of course, there was legislation in place that demanded that all long-term care homes have uh, air conditioning by now, and many of them uh, don't. 90, I think uh, uh, we heard on the news uh, recently. And uh, what goes to the whole point of uh, whether or not regulations are really enforced. Here again, we're seeing another regulation in place trying to protect seniors, but they're not being, uh, uh, they're not being enforced and uh, probably not being uh, uh supervised or reported in any way and what so what's the what's the penalty and and what are the what are the reasons uh, do all 90 homes have valid reasons a lot of questions from this
1: well and before I get Peter's reaction bill I just do want to go back to that legislation because they gave them until the end of this year I think to put in these air conditioning units is that fair I mean is that couldn't it have been done sooner couldn't they have put a t- tighter time frame on that one?
2: Well, I'm sure the pushback they got, as we all know, many of the uh, long-term care homes are very old. Uh, both the for-profit and not profit It's In fact, many of the uh, not-for-profits are even older, and that means that their systems uh, have to be completely changed to put in air conditioning that the electric system, electrical system can't handle. Uh, an individual unit in uh, in every room. There are major costs uh, involved. I would rather that the government have said, "You must do it by next summer, and here's a grant you can apply for, so we'll help you uh, help you get it done." that Mm -hmm. might have had action uh, more more quickly. And and I'm afraid there will be logical excuses that people will will make, and they'll say, well, we'll do it by next year. And, of course, telling an 85-year-old who's too hot today that by next year they're going to have some uh, relief just doesn't wash. It goes in one ear and out, out the other. What we need is action now, and this government has been really slow at uh, uh fast at making promises and yeah. at real action
1: Peter, have you heard any compelling excuses, or have you reached the point like me where you're just frankly fed up
3: <laughs> well i the excuses I've heard are are um <clears throat> like like Bill said about the wiring, so that's one issue that needs to be got around and also um another one that they're bringing up is supply chain issues the 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 units just aren't available there's a demand for air conditioning worldwide um You know, they're, they're obviously on a wait list or, or so they say. And then the third issue is actually getting workers into these homes. Um, some of these homes are in outbreak mode again. Some of them have, you know, uh, policies against, um, too many people in at once, people who aren't, uh, connected with the home. And, and it's apparently it's causing some headaches. But you know, uh, Marissa, the, um, I remember a couple of years ago, there was an outcry when, when the, um, the older elementary schools in Toronto, Uh, didn't have air conditioning. And it was a very hot June that year. And, you know, within two weeks, all the schools had air conditioning, all the rooms did. So Mm -hmm. um, that's to your point about how if children are are affected, um, action is very quick. Mm -hmm. And um, here, it doesn't seem as quick. Their obstacles aren't, you know, they keep popping up. But um, it, it doesn't seem that they're, they're trying to push through.
1: I don't know. buy the COVID excuse for one minute. It's not like a home's been in an outbreak for two years. Right. But you right. know what, Bill, I don't know that you've spent any time in a long-term care facility. Certainly I have. And I can tell you yeah. generally it's an unpleasant experience depending on the facility. Many don't even have windows that open. Then add to that potential for lockdowns. You're right. unable to leave your room. You're stuck in there without AC. It's frankly inhumane. And I have to ask, is this what ageism looks like?
2: Well, I, and that was—you uh, read my mind. That's exactly the point I was uh, going to make next. It's just another example of ageism that we don't put the concerns for our older citizens uh, ahead of, of other things we're thinking about. Even don't don't even keep them uh, keep them in in mind. And and you know there are some uh, you know it's true that there's some some real difficulties when it comes to putting in uh, air conditioning. For instance, if you're a family member and you would like to put in some kind of air conditioning unit, many of the uh, homes don't have windows that open, or if they do have windows that open, they're the crank type that go out only uh, 12 inches on a 45 degree angle, which means you can't put one of those units uh, in, the, in the window. So the whole lack of uh, planning and forethought when many of these buildings were being built year, years ago. I'm just hoping that we see with the, the rash of uh, new renovations and buildings we're seeing now uh, that they, they've taken in this into account. We're not going to go through the same thing again.
1: And it really does make you think when you're considering a home for a loved one to do your research, go through that building, make sure it has a C as a priority. All right, a headline over the weekend read, Toronto Western Hospital narrowly avoids er shutdown amid severe staffing shortages peter how did we get here is this a covid problem did it exist long before
3: um it it you know er's even at the best of times before covid were already um you know right on the verge of of not being able to handle the load uh you know visits 3 or 4 hours were common you know um if you had children uh, everyone knows the, the nightmares of trying to get get them through uh, an ER visit when when your doctor's not available. So um, those problems were there before. And now with the, um, after the pandemic, we're, we're still in it, I suppose. But, uh, you know, nurses have per- become burnt out. They've quit. They don't want to deal with that uh, situation again. And um, a system that was very shaky resource-wise is now... Um, showing its cracks. And, you know, uh, in the smaller towns are closing routinely now. And it's very scary that a downtown Toronto hospital could be on the verge of closing its ER. It's very scary.
1: Well, Peter mentions a smaller town. He's right. It's not isolated. The emergency room at a hospital in Perth, Ontario, Bill, reopened yesterday after more than three weeks due to staff shortages.
2: This is an issue right across the uh, country in uh, large and small uh, communities uh, from CARP. We're hearing about it almost daily, uh, uh, the lack of services uh, uh, available. And as you will well recall, uh, Marissa, uh, almost three years ago, uh, Carp was decrying the long wait times in uh, emergency rooms and and others. Uh, we knew prior to COVID this was a problem, as Peter said. COVID just made it worse because we've overworked our doctors and and nurses and the, and the system, and it still hasn't been fixed. And, it, and it's it's going to get worse before it gets uh, before it gets better. And uh, we're hearing. I I personally have the misfortune of having to be in an emergency room twice in the last two months. And I waited seven hours one time and eight hours the, the second. And I was a senior with a fairly severe problem at that point.
1: Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, and a lot of the government's focus then seems to be on infrastructure, building new hospitals, opening new surgical beds. But you can open all the surgical beds or hospital beds you want. But if there's no one to there to manage them, Peter, they stay empty.
3: Yeah. And it, it's a huge problem because you know i i don't blame nurses for leaving uh, working in, in in the hospital system it, it's a, it's a terrible it's been a terrible burden these past 2 years they're burnt out uh you know um they're complaining about not receiving pay raises they you know it, it just seems like uh, morale is broken there and um why would anyone want to work there you know it it, mm-hmm. it just it, it it seems like there are so many more options that uh you can choose rather than go into nursing, and and that's really hurt the workforce. And uh, they're going to have to do what U.S. states have been doing for a long time, and and you know paying extras, paying for apartments, uh, you know uh, paying their nursing school, and little bonuses here and there to attract them, because um, you know right now it, it it's not a very uh, uh, you know uh, attractive job to get into, an attractive career.
1: Well, you know. Actually, incidentally, you say, why would anyone want to work there? There was I had someone over this weekend watch my kids and um, she said to me that she wanted to be a PSW. She's waiting for her residency and hopes to become a PSW and work full time in a long term care home. So there are some some good people out there that that do still want to do God's work, as you say. But, you know, we are where we are uh, because of burnout and low pay and Extreme stress from the pandemic and extreme demands placed on healthcare workers in terms of what is expected of them managing more patients in a shorter period of time. And now, if you're seeing a doctor, Bill, who is burnt out, like Peter mentioned, you know, the other issue is how likely are they to pay attention to what it is you're actually saying? Saying, and I mean that with the most respect to our healthcare professionals, because this is not their fault. But That's in order right. to be attuned to someone else, you have to have it together yourself.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, and uh, uh, having uh, having a healthcare professional who's not. Uh, comfortable or happy in what they're doing, trying to, uh, give you advice and pay attention to your issues, uh, is a, is a real uh, problem. And, uh, you know, even the move to telehealth, which in some ways has gotten better. Many of our card members are telling us they're not feeling they're getting the same attention, nor the same ability to talk about their, their issues, uh, uh, by by phone or online than they were when they were able to visit uh in in person so mm-hmm. this this is is an issue and the other issue Barissa, is the whole recruitment issue we're not hearing from the Ontario government about moves to uh recruit uh the thousands of of the workers that are needed. They're talking about three hundred here and three hundred mm-hmm. uh, there nothing uh to uh to stop this bottleneck of Foreign-trained uh, doctors and nurses who are qualified under uh, standards that are recognized in Canada that still are working as uh, waiters and 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 uh, taxi drivers because they can't work in the in in the system. And whose fault is that? Well, we don't we don't know. Is it the government? Is it the professional societies? Somebody's got to take that in hand and sort it out because you're right. There are people who want to work in this field and they're not being allowed or being able. To do it at this time.
1: I just want to give out the numbers one more time to call and to participate in this discussion, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Do you have a personal experience with the healthcare system? I'd love to hear it. But Bill, just going back to that comment about how to address the staffing shortages um, you think opening the doors to foreign nurses, accepting um, nurses maybe with less experience in a particular hospital, there's a bit of a learning curve there, but that's the right, right approach in your view?
2: I'm, uh, well, what I'm saying is we need to, uh, to be able to hire people who have the same qualifications that new graduates would have in Canada. And there are, there, you know, there are many uh, training programs for both physicians and nurses around the world. Some of them are of not the same standard as Canada, but many of them do uh, have a standard that's recognized in Canada. And even the people who graduate from those schools are not able to to uh, work in Canada or easily uh, work in Canada. Or there are huge uh, financial barriers, test barriers, and experience barriers that are uh, that are in front of them. And, and there are, you know, we can see pockets of solutions. Uh, for instance, foreign-trained doctors under Canadian-approved systems that then uh, are asked to work uh, side by side with a Canadian doctor mm-hmm. for a period of time before they're on their own. Uh, that's happening in some places, but way, way too far. Uh, uh, too too few of them uh, then uh, can can fill the need uh, now. This this needs. Uh, action that's immediate and and different. And we've got to start thinking outside of the the box on this one because it's not going to be solved if we just try to go back to the same old methods of uh, training a finite number of health professionals uh, every year.
1: What about wage increases, Peter? Well,
2: I mean, that's a must.
3: You know, like if money overcomes a lot of, uh, issues. And I, I think if people saw that there was more money in this business, they, they would jump at getting into it, you know, uh, whether, um, you know, you have to pay competitively if if you want to fill, uh, uh, your, your human resources shortages. So, um, you know, the, the, the U S hospitals learned this long ago and they, and they've been doing that. They, they give, Higher wages, they give relocation costs, they give, uh, you know, they they'll pay for their uh, education and and that sort of thing. And, and Ontario is going to have to learn how that game's played because um, if there's a finite number of nurses available for all of North America, you know, we're going to have to get competitive and and get our share.
2: No, well, Peter, Peter's yeah. right, and and the other uh, point is that working conditions have to be better. We know from Uh, from all kinds of of research inside and outside the medical field that people get in or get out of jobs as much as uh, for the working conditions and the people are working for the system than for the dollars that they're being paid. And I haven't heard any attention uh, being paid to improving the working conditions of these, uh, of these people. Look at home care workers who are not paid when they have to go between uh, one patient or another or on split shifts are expected to um, fund their own uh, car when they go from, from place to place. These are all working conditions that could uh, could be solved even at, in advance of major pay uh, yeah. uh, wage increases. And Bill, I, I'd
3: even say this: the, the younger generation now coming into the workforce is much more interested in, in working conditions and quality of life and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, um, they're not willing to put up with the same sort of... Uh, Deprivations that maybe the older nurses had, and and so that speaks more to your point. Like it's not only money; it's also changing the way mm-hmm. these places are run to improve the quality of life, to make the workers happier, and lessen the case of burnout.
1: But money is a factor, and you know you worry because, as I understand it, and again, I, I don't pretend to have the answers to this. Issue to this problem that we have here, but as I understand it, the nurses who fill in the gaps get paid more, and so financially, you might worry that this would incentivize nurses to become nurses who fill in the gaps, as opposed to staying with a certain hospital and really knowing the patients and the ins and outs of that hospital. Bill.
2: Yeah, that that's just another uh, another example how the the system. D- uh, and the people running the systems don't seem to understand what they're uh, what they're dealing with, and 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 what it takes, and the and the the impact. And you really wonder whether uh, the people in the Department of, uh, of Health, the, the bureau, I'm talking about the bureaucrats here, any of them who are in these decision-making points have actually worked in the system at a level where they understand what it's really like from a worker's point of view. The workers certainly tell us they don't think they understand, and I suspect. Uh, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, more involvement from, uh, the, the, the workers in setting the standards, setting the, the, uh, the, uh, conditions in which, in which they, uh, work. Just, just plain good management practices which don't seem to be, uh, be followed in, in the health system. We, health system is not patient. Based, it's system uh, based, and it's not employee based either. And both of those are going to have to change.
1: All right, our phone lines are lighting up. So let's get to the first caller here, Lucy in Etobicoke. Lucy, you're on the line. Go ahead. Hello.
4: I just wanted to make a comment. I read in an article um, that uh, there was a woman trying to get in. We have a shortage of uh, family positions, and yet with an 85 overall average in her GPA over four years, which is very difficult to achieve, and 88 in her MCAT, she was turned down by institution after institution and ended up finding a position in the states. They need to open, if they want to address the issue of nursing and doctors, they need to open more spaces in these professions. They are restricting the amount of space. And so then it, 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 they are creating a shortage artificially. If they would just open them up, they would be able to get more people in those professions.
1: I don't know all the specifics of this case, Bill, but uh, sounds reasonable enough to me.
4: Well, I can tell you uh, they are very, uh, they restrict it uh, quite a bit. And so they create a shortage. And then their solution is, oh, bring them in from overseas. And I'm thinking, no, there are a lot of Canadian students who want to go into these things, but they are being blocked at every turn. Bill? Okay, that's my, my comment. Don't Thanks, Lucy. Thank you.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: you're right, Lucy, and and they're being blocked. Uh, uh, one of the reasons is because there aren't enough uh, training uh, uh, spaces, so they're they may be picking the. Uh, top candidates, but then they uh, they can't take all the ones that want to, to get in, and that's where we need expansion, both at the uh, the, the PSW, the, the nursing level, and physician uh, level. Unless we work to open up more training spaces, we're going to continue to have the problem, and people who want to work in them are going to be turned away.
1: Uh, it's a tough subject to discuss, that's for sure. Um, all right, before I let you go, I want your reaction to the Pope's visit and what it might mean in Canada this week, Peter. I'll start with you.
3: Um, it's it's a uh, it's a big moment for um, for the Indigenous people. It's a it's a big moment for the Church. Um, you know, uh, previous popes have apologized, so um, this one seems uh, less about the apology and more about um, possible action afterwards, which. Uh, I think will mean money. So uh, the church is already reeling from uh, settling um, sexual abuse scandals and lawsuits and and that sort of thing. And if they're going to have indigenous lawsuits on the heels of that, it's going to pose great uh, financial harm on on the church. So an apology is one thing, but uh, whether uh, the, the lawsuits follow that that'll be that'll be an interesting thing to see.
1: You don't sound so optimistic, Peter.
3: Um, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a cynic when when these public apologies are, you know, um, it's just the, the the agenda behind them. You know, um, I know there are, there are some groups that are very, um, you know, that that will be uh, moved by faith and and sort of the healing process process can begin, but I, I think there are some um, other other uh, plays at stake here, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops.
1: Bill, what's your reaction to well, I, the Pope's visit? Yeah, I,
2: I uh, certainly follow along uh, Peter's uh, train, of, uh, train of thought. Uh, uh, my question is, will this have any real outcome uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, starting to correct some of the issues that still exist, let alone apologizing uh, uh, for, the, for the past? I think it's important. Uh, to those indigenous people who who are are, are, are care about this issues so or family or by it, that they need this uh, apology to move on and i hope it's stronger than the ones that we've seen in the past but when push comes to pull Uh, what's going to uh, happen in terms of uh, making sure, A, that it's not happening again, and B, that the people who are still suffering from what they went through, how they are helped in the the long run. And uh, there are many people, I don't know enough about it to, to make a a personal comment, but there are many people who think that the uh, the church has much deeper pockets than they are now ad- admitting, and uh, some of that needs to be uh, used also to uh, settle uh, settle this and and uh, bring it to some kind of conclusion.
1: Well, it is interesting because uh, you know the Catholic Church seems to be the target, but. Other churches were involved, and I heard in some of the commentary this morning that some of those other churches lived up to their financial commitment. Meanwhile, the Canadian Catholic Church didn't. Now, I don't necessarily have any insight into that, but I will ask my next guest, Dr. Veldin Coburn, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Studies, about that to see if he has any insights on that. Uh, In the meantime, that is your Zoomer squad for today with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy Officer and Chief Operating Officer of CARP, And Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, it's good to have you both on.
3: Thanks, Marissa. Thanks, Marissa.
1: As I said, coming up, the Pope is here for a six-day visit specifically to address the issue of seeking reconciliation with Indigenous people. So far, the response has been mixed. We'll ask Dr. Veldon Coburn, assistant professor of Indigenous studies at the University of Ottawa, for his reaction next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox.
1: Welcome back. Pope Francis arrived in Canada yesterday for a six-day trip specifically to address the issue of reconciliation with Indigenous communities and the Catholic Church's involvement in residential schools. So, What can we expect from this trip before I introduce my next guest? Let's put the numbers out there again. You can call us 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. All right. Joining me now to discuss Dr. Velden Coburn, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Ottawa. It's good to have you.
5: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So first of all, what's your reaction to the Pope's visit? Are you optimistic?
5: Uh, I'm a little bit optimistic, but it's a long time coming. So to place this sort of in perspective, in the timing anyways, is that uh, we can go back to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement in around 2006, and then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work from 2007 to 2015. Even prior to then, I mean, prior to the calls to action, um, and and it's a symbolic gesture. Like, it it doesn't. Well, I can see that they have invested quite a bit of um, money into coming over here because it's not a a cheap event in any case. But um, prior to this, the other two major churches that were responsible for running Indian residential schools, the United Church Canada and the Anglican Church, had. Uh, extended their apologies and, uh, whatever sort of warm wishes they wish to extend to indigenous peoples. And the lo- the last holdout, which is the Roman Catholic Church had operated over 60% of Indian residential schools, had dug in its heels for a long time up until now, and, and, and it really took a little bit of twisting. So, um, and, and we're getting to the point because the last Indian residential schools, federally run anyways, ran uh, closed in the late, 90s, mm-hmm. mid-90s-ish, and even for survivors from, you know, 60, 70 years ago, they might have already passed on, and, and the, the number of survivors are dwindling, and their, their last dying hope for many is just to hear the words, I'm, I'm sorry, to, um, to to move onwards for some closure in their lives. So, here we yeah. are in 2022, and um, it's been over 20 years since we had last had a, a papal visit, so I mean Pope Benedict prior did not come to Canada. It was Pope John Paul on his second visit, I believe, in two thousand and two thousand perhaps maybe and um, there wasn't much time left but for that many survivors
1: but that apology is important to you and 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 you and you say it's symbolic
5: uh yeah well I, it's important for me in the sense, not not personally necessarily, but for those people who went before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission so to just really privilege their voice in this. To say that this is what they sort of asked for, and I didn't go to Indian residential school myself, and uh, so it's, I don't. I believe it's my place to say what is required for their own personal healing. So many, many do, many want that. Um, other mm-hmm. Indigenous people are still quite upset with the church. Uh, there's also a lot of non-Indigenous people who are quite upset with the church for um, certain crimes and what have you that may have been perpetrated. Um, and it's it's around the globe too, like you know in different countries as well like ireland had a a, a similar issue in the last couple of years with the mother-child homes as well so with the um the exorbitant number of deaths and uh you know ushering away young pregnant uh mothers to either well steal their children away or or let their children perish Um, and they had their five-year inquiry over in ireland that wrapped up in i believe 2019. so Uh, there's a diverse sentiment amongst Indigenous people.
1: Well, you raise a good point, because I've seen some reports of Indigenous leaders who've now had an opportunity to meet with the Pope describe that meeting as humbling and Mm -hmm. hopeful. And then I've seen other commentary from people who are generally negative about the whole thing, who would rather not see the Pope even step foot on... Uh, you know, a former residential school, uh, uh, former residential schools, or, or and would rather lo- see financial reparations or prosecutions for sex offenders. So what does reconciliation really look like when there is such a diverse, you know, there doesn't seem to be much of an agreement on what is needed to actually get there?
5: Yeah, so going back to say the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action, there's quite a bit of, uh, what you would say is symbolic, but other people would say, well, you know, even though it's symbolic, this is actually an action on behalf of the Pope, His Holiness coming here to utter the words, I'm sorry. So for those people who are just holding out for that, I, I think that would suffice for them, but there are other people who might legitimately say, well, you damaged my my life and you damaged a lot of the prospects for my life. I never got to live a normal life um, after the abuse in these schools and uh, and I'll get to the example of St. Anne's Indian Residential School in Fort Albany in a moment, uh, because it's still ongoing in litigation, is just that for Indigenous peoples, it was one more step along the line of uh, creating barriers to prosperity in their life. They said, you know, if if it wasn't for your participation in this colonial venture, perhaps I would have probably had a a better life. I, I wanted to, but, you know, I hated school and I left as soon as possible. And I never became a doctor or a lawyer or even just, you know, some sort of advanced education that would have placed me in a little bit of a higher uh, socioeconomic bracket, if you will. Um, and I think they're liable for a little bit of that damage. So some people may, may have that say, like, you know, it. I've had to do a lot of the psychological work at healing independently of whatever efforts. And I mean, there had been no efforts really by the Catholic Church. Uh and now for you just to show up and say, I'm sorry, isn't enough for those individuals. Um, but yes, so St. Anne's in, in residential school in Fort Albany, there were some criminal convictions in the nineties. This is in, um, uh, along the James Bay coast, the Moose Creek, uh, uh, nation. So there's Adawafscat, Fort Albany, Cheshwan, and um, Moose Factory up there. Mm-hmm. And I might be forgetting one Fort Albany, but, uh, uh, they were sent to this very brutal Indian residential school, and many of them opted out of the Indian residential school settlement agreement just because of the atrocities that were perpetrated there, even with the police investigations and subsequent convictions of a number of uh, Catholic officials, even nuns. It's a place that had the sort of notorious electric chair that was there for punishment and also for the amusement of certain uh, officials at the universities or not sorry not the universities but the, the school itself the authorities so principals that were drawn from the priesthood or or the nuns what have you so uh they're still making their way to court because whatever the pope might say i'm sorry and and it was a catholic order um it, it won't heal any of their wounds and
1: Um, And and it may not be proportional to the crimes that were perpetrated. Now, one of the things I heard, though, is that in some of the commentary, uh, you know, about the Pope's trip was that the Catholic Church has not lived up to its financial commitment to Indigenous groups where other churches have. Do you have any insights into that?
5: Yeah. So back in the early 2000s, and it was sort of organized as an alternative um, dispute resolution mechanism, because this was uh, sort of a conglomerate of individual suits against both the Crown and the churches throughout the 90s. Uh, some some of efforts had failed throughout the late 90s to put them together and said, well, you know what, we could do this because they're going to probably launch a class action, and uh, we can sort of treat it as a class and settle it in, with a, a sort of a global settlement, if, if, if you would. And part of the obligations for the Catholic Church was to, I think it was initially $79 million, and then the federal government sort of let them off the hook for quite a bit, down to about $35 million. And then in our last federal election, days afterward, it was sort of revealed that the federal crown had dropped a, um, an appeal of a court settlement by the previous government in 2015, and that was during the caretaker government, during that long, um, historically long, writ period from August 2015 to October 2015 with the change between the Harper government to the, the Trudeau Liberals, is uh, they just sort of let the Catholic Church off the hook for their financial liabilities in the settlement, and anger angered quite a few people. So current Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller looked into it and said, well, yeah, so um unfortunately you just can't go and undo that. But uh the church had pled a little bit of poverty and asked to be let off the hook for what they had owed. So th- there's a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth of Indigenous peoples here, for some of us anyways, that we saw figures like $40 million being poured into Alberta, for example, that uh they're paving highways so that— <laughs> You know, they could put the Pope in the pope mobile, and I saw images of it earlier today. Just a, a white Jeep with, that looks like the same thing that Pope John Paul had brought to the East Guy Dome in the 80s or what have you. But uh, uh, to drive down freshly paved roads onto the reserve. And um, so they're, they're, they, they said they've never lived up to the material aspects of reconciliation. And, and they say it's fairly minor now because the Church is fairly flush with um, financial wealth.
1: So. The Pope is also facing calls to renounce the Doctrine of Discovery. Do you know what that is?
5: Yes. Yeah, so back in the 15th century, where it was still the Holy Roman Empire and the uh, the European crowns, for the most part, were all aligned with the Vatican, is the the kingdom. So usually kings, a few queens here and there, when it changed hands over the throne, they uh, would get sort of like their... You know, they ruled by divine right, and it was through the Catholic faith. And Pope Alexander the Sixth, as in the late 15th century, issued to the four dominant colonial crowns, Spain, Portugal, England, and France, where you go if there are these indigenous people who didn't use those exact words, they used the words like heathens, saracens, and other pagans anyone who's non-Christian-like, they're, they are akin to animals, and therefore they cannot own the territory. And if you go there, we can treat it as terra nullia, so empty land, and that they could not be possibly conceived to be as governing or holding territorial titles. So it was to adjudicate disputes between the four competing colonial crowns wherever they were roaming around the earth, and um, if they saw someone who was not Christian, they could claim that land. It was like theirs to be discovered, and therefore they could claim sovereignty over it. Mm. And uh, it's it's sort of being repudiated in Canadian common law. Um, more so, the you know, it's, it's the partner in common law is the uh, doctrine of Terranolius. And in 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Silcatine case said, "Well, Terranolius didn't apply in Canada." Um as is evident from the Royal Proclamation of 1763, because it does recognize Indigenous peoples being here. But um, in the United States, they do have it in their, they still cite it in their common law. Um, former uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the Doctrine of Discovery um, probably about 15 years ago in a decision with the Oneida Nation. So it, it does have a place in uh, the the Supreme law, although not necessarily enshrined explicitly in the constitution, but the interpretive judicial law that's made. Um,
1: but it, And
2: so, yeah.
1: But Go it's, a, so it's this, as I understand, it's a 15th century doctrine that held if you discovered indigenous land and you raised a flag, it was yours. Is that essentially?
5: That's it. Yeah. And so it, yeah.
1: if, but obviously it's not, practiced today. So is this calling for it to be rescinded? I mean, is that something that will really make a difference or it's obviously symbolic and Mm -hmm. part of a larger list of things that people are hoping for in order to achieve reconciliation?
5: Yeah. So personally, I don't see it have any formal or actually any effective purpose. I guess, any, any effect given really in practical day-to-day matters, especially in, in law and the organization between the crown and Indigenous nations. Um, so there's a little bit of symbolism in it. I've seen some arguments by uh, legal scholars that say, well, you know, it, even though there's no real Pope that's out there and it's it's unenforced law, it's still underwrites current claims to sovereignty that undermines Indigenous people. So, I am, for for myself personally, just and and I do teach this kind of thing in class. Is that I lean more towards it being symbolic? Mm. Um, yeah, I don't I don't see the Canadian state going around and saying, "Hey, this is um, you know we, we still don't have a treaty here, but I'm going to appeal to the Pope to make sure this old doctrine of discovery right. that was issued in 1492 mm. is." applicable here, or 1495
4: it may be.
1: Now, I imagine you've taken a look at the Pope's schedule. It's posted online. Do you see any missed opportunities in your view during his trip here?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fairly sparse trip across Canada, and there's only a few select sites. We haven't had a papal visit in over 20 years, as I mentioned earlier, so yeah, yeah, and it and it took a little bit of arm twisting, especially on the conference of Canadian Catholic bishops, or um, because I guess the Pope comes at their at their sort of invitation, really. And when is the next next papal visit going to be? I, I realize that he can't go to all one hundred ninety countries every year and then spend a week there.
1: Um, well, what would you have liked to have seen him do? I think
5: uh, so. So he's going to be in Quebec City and uh, might go up to Nunavut as well. Uh, so there seems to be a really only three sites. I guess, you know, just because there is a large number of Catholics in Canada, that they'll sort of make, you know, a sort of pilgrimage to Edmonton, for example. So it'll draw, I don't know, it could be crowds of tens of thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands. It, it's not quite clear to me. Um, but... um there are there's, there's several sites across Canada where uh, it'll be inaccessible for many of the survivors. Uh, but I'm sure, I don't know, they'll tune in if they if they want to on television, see what's televised.
1: But All right, Dr. Veldon Coburn, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Ottawa. Good to have you. Many thanks. Take care. All right, and coming up, the House of Commons Industry Committee is having a two-day hearing involving Rogers officials. We'll tell you about that
0: next.
1: The House of Commons Industry Committee is having two hearings today involving Rogers officials. The hearings, of course, concern that 15-hour service outage that took place earlier this month, affecting millions of Canadians, myself included, and disrupting key sectors like healthcare, financial institutions, and even calls to 911. Those involved in testifying today include Rogers officials, Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne, and members of the CRTC. So what can we expect? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's welcome my next guest, Ben Class, telecom researcher and PhD candidate at Carleton. Ben, it's good to have you. Thanks
6: for having me on the program, Marissa.
1: <laughs> Earlier this morning, on my way into work, driving along the Gardner, I attempted to receive a phone call, but after about two seconds, the call would drop. And then after about, I kid you not, 10 attempts to connect, I finally FaceTimed to the person. I just had the phone on the seat next to me. I wasn't looking at the screen while driving. But for the first time in my life since becoming a Rogers customer... With my first cell phone over twenty years ago, I contemplated switching to another provider. Now I have no idea if these two incidents are related, but I keep hearing stories of people having trouble with their Rogers service since this outage. Your reaction?
6: I mean, I think that being uh, in uh, a little bit of it and from time to time, which um, hours? But I. When you hear
1: Ben, I can't hear you very well. Can you speak a little bit closer to the microphone? Hi, how's this, Chris? That's a little bit better. Well, I'm, I'm, I was just
6: saying, I'm glad we weren't having to call 911 because you hear your phone.
1: You know what? Ben we make we make a hang up and call you right back just because the service doesn't seem to be very good. Um maybe he's on a Rogers line, I don't know. But you know, this is the issue that we are facing nowadays is there seems to be such little competition right now. You have Bell, you have Rogers, you have Telus, you have the big 3 but What position does this leave consumers in when there aren't many options? Uh, Not to mention when one goes out, you've got the other two, but very little access to 911. Now, I know that's something that Rogers is trying to strike a deal with with the other providers in order to allow for 911 calls, because that would be a very scary situation to put yourself, to be in if you were in need of 911, in need of hospital services and uh, you were no you weren't able to get through to anyone on top of that. I can't um stress this enough. The cost seems to be egregious these days for cell phone bills. Do we have Ben back one moment all right, he'll be back in just a few minutes um so those are some of the things that I think we need to focus on is. You know, with these hearings, you do wonder if the response from the government will be proportional to the impact of the outage. And what are some of the things that we can expect from today? The government, um, you know, should they ought they be more involved in regulating this industry or perhaps less involved? And what do you really think is needed? Also, will the CRTC uh, open up more competition? Rogers, we know trying to merge with Shaw. The Competition Bureau trying to stop it. What can we expect from this? All right, Ben, you're back on the line. How are you? Yeah,
2: guess guess who
6: my service provider is. It,
1: but... <laughs> I have to say uh, they have to be related. They have to be related. All right, let's get to these hearings uh, with just a few minutes left. What should the response from the government be? Will it be proportional to the impact of the outage?
6: Well, I'm glad to see such a broad response. You know, we have the minister, the CRTC and the parliament all looking at this. Any one of those things on its own would be inadequate. But I think the fact that all of them are looking into this is a good sign because this is a really complicated problem. We certainly need more competition. We certainly Mm -hmm. need more regulation. I think the companies need to have their feet held to the fire by the political scene in order for there to be some real change.
1: What would that look like? How do you create more competition? How do you allow for it? Is that the CRTC?
6: Yeah. So the C- the CRTC um, takes direction from the government, and they are uh, sort of in the process of improving the uh, the regulations surrounding competition. Uh, I understand that there are ways to make uh, uh, the the arrangements that support competition in telecom more resilient, so that people will have a, a broader range of choice. And for instance, in the future, you could see uh, having the ability to switch networks when one goes down to the other just by using an app on your phone.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I know that um, when service does go down, I know Rogers is trying to strike a deal with some of the other providers. That seems like a no-brainer. Do you think that'll happen?
6: Yeah. Uh, so, actually, they already have these types of agreements. I think we, we need to be a little bit cautious there. The CRTC has the companies working in the background to make sure that they don't have problems, and yet we see them having it anyway. And so I think that this is a reminder that it's not just Rogers' fault, but we have a little bit of a lax environment here where the regulators is placing too much trust in the companies. I think we need to have a little bit more... Uh, more of a cop-on-the-beat type of approach than than we currently do.
1: Should the government, because of how big a problem this was, can we expect the government to be more involved in regulating this industry? Is that what's needed? Uh,
6: To be frank, I think so. Um, The minister's response today uh, doesn't lend a lot of um, support to the idea that they may be going with that approach. I mean, they're taking a measured approach, but he was careful to blame uh, Rogers and to suggest that a phone call to the CEOs would be enough to uh, bring things into Action. So we'll have to wait and see what the, uh, what the government actually does here. But I think the telecommunication is uh, too important and the companies that are providing it are, are essentially at this point too big to fail. Uh, so if they can't do it on their own, you know, and this isn't the first time Rogers has gone out in the past little while, uh, then there really isn't any other choice than to have uh, some public oversight.
1: Do you think one of the outcomes will be to open up competition, say, for um, business, uh, companies in the U.S.? Will that, is that possible?
6: Yeah, so we do already have a a competition allowed from the U.S., but there hasn't been a lot of appetite for it. You know, I think that, um, one thing the government should be doing here is taking stock in the competition we do have. You know, you see that Rogers is trying to take over Shaw and they need the permission from the government to do it. I really think that that should be a non-starter,
4: uh, you know,
6: for a number of reasons, but in particular, because we can see if Rogers had already taken over Shaw, it would have been that many more people, you know, several million more who would have been affected by this. It's my firm view that we need to have more diversity. Uh, in our markets, more decentralization, and that's a good way of protecting it against and containing these types of things when they happen.
1: As I understand, the Competition Bureau is trying to stop that. Do you think we can expect that this outage might impact that deal?
6: You know, when the merger was first announced, I would have said that it was going through no matter what, but uh, a lot of of sort of obstacles have come up uh, over the course of this year-long process. And I think, um, you know, that The best thing for the country would be for the Competition Bureau to stop the merger outright, Uh, and I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen, but you never know.
1: All right, Bob in Toronto uh, called in for his comments. Here, Bob, you're on the line.
3: Yeah, I work in this industry, and I, I kind of work in the core network of it, so i got a bit of a background. But can you imagine if these autonomous vehicles were working on 5G and the network shut down, what would happen that day? But as for competition, I really can't see how you're going to get any other competition because these big telcos, I think like they're capitalized to the tune of 50 billion or a hundred billion dollars. Who's going to walk in and build a whole brand new network across a 4,000 kilometer country with not a
2: single customer on it yet. Mm. It's just not going to happen.
1: Thanks Bob for your call. You know, Ben, he makes a valid point.
2: Yeah, I agree. You
6: know, and we his his explanation uh, perfectly fits the reason that the large American companies haven't moved in here. Um, but there's other ways to promote competition. And, you know, the CRTC encourages sharing of networks. Um, certain components of networks are shared with competitors. And there I understand ways to technically arrange that to maximize the independence of those competitors. So, for instance, uh, you know, if Rogers Core Network went down and a company like TechSavvy was just renting their towers, uh, people who were on that other system wouldn't uh, – wouldn't necessarily be affected. Um, And you also, I mean, I think just from the perspective of uh, a very broad perspective, um, one of the MPs during today's meeting raised uh, this question, if Rogers uh, had less than 10 million people, you know, we have such a concentrated market, uh, isn't that part of the problem that so many people are dependent on so few companies, right? Mm
4: -hmm. So, uh,
6: I mean, I think to the extent that we have more competition, it means that when these things do happen, perhaps less people will be affected by them. Uh, and companies like Interact, you know, um, might have alternate supply instead of having to rely on one or two giant companies.
1: 30 seconds before I wrap, but I have to ask as a sort of final thought, what does it say that Canada's biggest telecom provider messes up like this? What does that say?
6: Uh, I mean, I think what it really is telling us is that this is a when these types of problems are going to happen and not if they're going to. Uh, You know, I look very skeptically on promises to make sort of technological innovations that will make this type of thing impossible in the future. And I, what I, I'd like to see is, uh, you know, investing some human capacity in uh, coming up with solutions to mitigate the harms and to make them uh, sort of less large in scale when they do eventually happen.
1: All right. Good discussion. Ben Class, telecom researcher and PhD candidate at Carleton. It's good to have you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Marissa. Bye-bye. And that's it for Fight Back. I'm in for Libby's Nimer all week. She's on vacation. The nerve. We'll see you next time.